Okay, so uh, we're in a, a series, this is our fifth week in a series entitled Wealthy. And wealthy is different than rich. Rich is all about money. Wealthy is all about this full-on, multi-orbed life that God is and wants to lead us into. Um, but I want to read a proverb for us this morning to get us, to get us moving. It's Proverbs 13:11. And um, anybody ever heard of a, um, a get-rich-quick scheme? Anybody ever heard of that? Get, um, regarding, this, regarding money, um, some people in the world want a whole lot of money. Actually, probably most of us would like more. Is that true? Everybody raise your hand. Yes. Okay. So um, in the world, there's um, this mentality regarding earthly riches that we, we all kind of want more money. And the way that we think that will happen is it will happen um, in some very quick and easy fashion, and then that's how, that's how we'll get rich. That's the essence of a get-rich-quick scheme. Like the lottery would be a get-rich-quick scheme. Um, or maybe, maybe this. Um, let's say you're at the Thanksgiving meal and uh, you, you see family there that you see once a year and uh, your second or third cousin, Eddie, is sitting at the table with you and you're eating turkey and stuffing together. And Eddie's got a hot stock tip. And he's really excited about it. And he's so excited about it that now you're excited about it. And so as soon as the market opens on Monday morning... You are liquidating all of your assets to put money into this hot stock. It's going to the moon. And then on Tuesday, after you've bought it, the company actually goes out of business. Because Cousin Eddie has no idea what he's talking about, right? But sometimes when we get into a get-rich-quick scheme mentality, we want, it, we want it fast, we want it easy, and we don't want to have to learn anything or be disciplined. It opens us up to a whole bunch of trouble. But that's what essentially Proverbs 13.11 says. Riches gained hastily, quickly, will dwindle. But, contrast, here's the way of the wise, whoever gathers little by little will increase it. So the idea here is if you want to grow in your earthly riches, don't try to get rich quick. Because even if Cousin Eddie's stock does work out, and let's say you triple your money, well the next stock tip that he has is probably going to go to zero. At some point, you're going to lose it all. If you try to get rich quick, you're going to lose it all at some point. You're not going to have much. But contrast is faithful discipline, learning where to put your faithfully disciplined resources over time will lead you up and to the right and you will grow and over time you will have more. That's little by little is the wise path to earthly riches. Now, we're not talking about riches in this series. We're talking about wealth, which is way more than just about money. It's about a relationship with God, relationship with others, uh, a relationship as rulers over creation, and then even a relationship with ourselves and our own identity. That's what God wants to lead us into. But I wonder if, as followers of Jesus, sometimes we have a get wealthy quick mentality. We don't want to do the faithful, small, disciplined things over time that would grow our relationship with him, others, creation, and ourselves. Because that's too much. It's too much labor. It's too much work. We don't want to engage in that. We're looking for something quick. And so we look for the next Christian conference. And we think, wow, if I could just get to that conference in Nevada, man, something like the Spirit's going to move there and we'll all leave immediately wealthy, Right? And we just chase conference to conference to conference looking for wealth at the next easy conference. Or like we'll, we'll try to find like if I could just find that, that Christian therapist, 
Man, that would be my quick and easy way to a wealthy relationship with God, others, myself, and creation. Or like just waiting for that book. Like, where's the book? Somebody's got to be writing it. And you go to the Christian bookstore just trying to find that one book that will make us instantly wealthy in all the ways that God wants. And we chase after these things because we want it to happen fast, not realizing that God's invitation to wealth regarding relationship with him, others, creation, and ourselves is similar to how we're supposed to grow rich. It's small, incremental, faithful steps over time. Faithfully reading our Bibles, even when it doesn't feel like anything magical is happening. Faithfully coming to church and being around the body and receiving and blessing others. Faithful week in and week out. Nothing wildly exciting about that, but it's just slow, incremental growth. Faithfully praying and being honest before God. That, I think, is the way to grow wealthy. Now, this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the context in which God invites us to grow in wealth, himself, others, creation, and ourselves. The context in which he invites us to grow in this incremental wealth thing that he's doing. Okay? Where does our growth happen? And so here's a spoiler alert. Uh, This morning, you're invited to a party. Is anybody ready to party this morning? I get a sense that the balcony's ready to break out in a party, but I'm not sure about y'all on the floor. Just wondering. The party's going to be happening up there. This morning, we will be invited into a party, and the party is the environment in which Jesus is inviting us to incrementally, over time, grow in our wealth in all of the ways that he made us to be wealthy. Okay? And the story that we're going to look at that uh, will draw this out is in Luke chapter 15. And in this story, we're going to see all of the ways that God has made us to be wealthy. We're going to see them all right here in one very simple parable that Jesus told. Okay, Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. Here's the story where Jesus is inviting us into wealth and where we shall grow in our wealthiness. Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Here we go. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Okay, immediately what we're seeing here is that um, we're seeing signs that this particular son whom the story is focusing in on He's become a leaky individual. Remember, if you were here last week, we talked about um, our personal self being a significant ingredient in the wealth-building life that God is calling us to, and how our personal identity and who and how we are is so important in this equation. Well, we're giving uh, we're given evidence right now that this this individual, this son, has some personal brokenness inside of his heart. Right? He's leaking. No matter what you pour into him, things are going to leak out. Here's why we know that. Um, in Jewish culture in this day, uh, a Jewish father was expected to rule over his belongings until he died. To be the creational steward over them, at least in an ultimate sense, until he passed. It's kind of actually very similar to today. Um, and to have a son who would approach you and say... Dad, I'd like to bypass the cultural norm of you actually maintaining ownership of these things while you're alive. I'd like to take ownership of the things that I'm going to get when you actually die. 
but I don't want to wait until you die to get it. I'd like it now. This is culturally offensive. It's, um, it's a dishonorable conversation, and it's an offensive conversation. And oftentimes when we offend outside of ourselves in relationship, it's because there, there is an offending heart that we carry around with us. When we dishonor others, it's because our heart itself is dishonorable, right? So this son is a dishonorable young man, and we are seeing it, and Jesus is showing us glimpses into his personal self that is broken. Then we continue in the second half of verse 12. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Very generous father. Very generous. Wow. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So we've already seen that this young son is broken personally. Now there's going to be some more breaking that happens here. The first thing is, as he takes his property and he goes into a faraway country, what he is doing is he is creating distance between himself and his father. You know, this is a parable. And in the parables that Jesus tells, each of the parts, um, they stand for or represent different things. So the father in this story is actually representing God. And the son is actually representing you and me. Jesus is telling us what we have done, okay? But the father is God. So anytime from now on I read the word father in this story, think God. So this young man has separated himself in great geographic proximity from God himself, right? The number one ingredient that leads to a wealthy life, relationship with God, we talked about this many weeks ago, this young man is walking away from God that wealth, right? But it's not just him walking away from his father or God in the parable. He's also leaving everyone else. Every relationship that he has ever had, he is also walking away geographic distance from them. His mom, his brother, his cousins, extended family, his business associates, everyone he has known, he is leaving. Now, Jewish culture in the first century was not a transitory culture. Even Jesus himself, Jesus never moved any further than a 70-mile radius in his entire life. Okay? Um, we live in a day where you're raised in a town and then you go to college 300 miles away. Then you graduate college and you take a job 1,500 miles somewhere else for a couple of years. And then you take another job 1,000 miles away. We're just like bopping all around the place. But we got phones and all sorts of ways to connect us. They didn't move around like that in the first century. Where you were born, you typically lived and you stayed because that's where your people were. But this guy says, Dad, I'm done with you. I'm going away. And every other relationship I have, which is the second ingredient in a wealthy life, he says, I'm done with y'all too. I'm gone. And he vacates. So he's got personal issues, personal identity. This guy's got problems. He's broken. He's left his father who is God. He's also leaving every relationship that he has, right? Three of the four ingredients of a wealthy life, this guy's not doing well. Now, let's take a look at the fourth relationship, which would be our creational stewardship relationship. Let's see what he's doing there. Takes a journey into a far country, verse 13, and there... In the faraway place, he squandered his property in reckless living. 
I don't know what God has given you charge over in this world to rule and subdue. But we know that this guy has taken half of his father's possessions. He's gone into the faraway country and he has squandered all of it in wild and reckless living. The bar taps are open, right? The party is happening. He's the party guy and he is just shoveling money out in wild, reckless living, which is the opposite. Remember we talked about our rulership capacity over creation, that it's something that God made us for and to be wealthy in. And we talked about the Proverbs 31 woman. Everything that this woman has in her charge is multiplying and growing. She sees an empty field and she's got money in her pocket because she's, she's doing business and she buys the field and she adorns it with vineyards, right, uh, with grapevines. She, she makes a vineyard. She's working with her hands. She's got multiple businesses that she's juggling around. She is not squandering everything that's under her charge. She's multiplying it. We also talked about Joseph that week. Joseph off in Egypt is being a masterful ruler over all the things that Pharaoh has given him charge of in Egypt. And he's building grain silos and storehouse cities. That takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of genius. It takes a lot of like vocational acumen to figure out all the things that Joseph is figuring out. Joseph and the Proverbs 31 woman are ruling and subduing creation well. They're wealthy at it. This guy, regarding his property, Jesus says he has squandered it. He's a fool. He doesn't know how to manage the things that he has, and he is spending all of it in all of the wrong ways. Brothers, 0 for 4, regarding the four things that God says lead to a wealthy life. 0 for 4. If you're shooting hoops, well, I don't care what sport you're in, that's not a good stat. Not good. Now let's take a look at where he moves himself into. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, first off, what we learn is this guy now has not a penny to his name. We're talking earthly riches now in the story. He's got nothing. He's beyond poor. He's destitute. He's got no way of providing for himself. But it actually gets worse than that. Because we continue to read in verse 14, in addition to having him he's spent everything, then it says a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. This is like double poverty. Let me explain that. You can be in a rich country and have not a penny to your name and you can live off of the overflow of abundance that's just flowing around us. We live in a very abundant country. You can actually live fairly well having absolutely nothing. Zero in your bank account. There are nonprofit organizations and there's government funding available. There's places where you can go get food just about any day of the week. You can get groceries. You can even get assistance and a place to lay your head for long periods of time having nothing in a country of abundance. What we learn here, Jesus says, is he has nothing and he's in a land where famine has broken out. In a land of famine, you can be at the top of the tier wealth-wise, riches-wise, and still have nothing yourself because the land isn't producing anything. 
So this guy has got a double poverty punch to the face. He has nothing and he's in a land of nothing. He's in dire straits here. Poverty has beset him. Verse 15. So this is what he does. He went out and he hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. Keep in mind, Jesus is a Jewish man in a Jewish culture telling a story to Jewish people. Um, pigs, for the entirety of the Jewish Old Testament, right? this is Jewish culture, pigs were part of the list of unclean things. Jewish people would not eat them, they would not be around them, they would not associate with them. So as Jesus is sharing this story about what the kingdom is like, this young man who has found himself in poverty, in a land of poverty, now it's actually gotten horrific. The job that he got is feeding pigs. He is spending all day with nasty, unclean, disgusting, God-forsaken animals. Now, we don't live in a kosher society. Those are not our rules anymore, so it's different. But I just want you, in the culture that Jesus is speaking this, it actually, he keeps getting poorer and poorer and poorer, right? This is horrifying to Jesus's Jewish audience. Horrifying thing number one was that this young man asked his dad for his inheritance prematurely. It's very offensive. Horrifying thing number two is he is tending to pigs. This is humiliating, humiliating, humiliating. Verse 16, and he, the young man, as he's tending to the unclean pigs in the lack of dignity environment, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Hungry and desperate and humiliated. He has taken his father and rejected him and replaced his father with an uncaring boss. Doesn't give a rip about him. There's no help coming to him from the boss in the time of famine. The boss wants him to feed the pigs. You don't take any food from my pigs. I don't care about you. That's the kind of relationship he has exchanged his father out and the uncaring boss in. Great trade, young man. Fantastic. Good choice. Where's it leading you? Now, that's not it. Not just, I haven't just traded the father out for an uncaring boss. He's traded all of his family, his mom, his brother, his extended family. He's traded all of his relationships of his past. He's gotten rid of them and exchanged them for his party friends. Right? And as long as he's paying the beer tab, and as long as he's providing the fun, he's funding the DJ, as long as the party's going on, it seems as if he's got some real relationships around him. But as soon as the gravy train runs out and he's got no money, now he finds himself in a deep, desperate human place. Which of his party friends are there? Answer is none. Zero. There are none of them here to care. And no one, no one, no one gave him anything because no one, no one cares about him. Or let me rephrase that. Everyone who did, he's left. This young man is in abject 
poverty in every way that God has made him for wealth, he's chosen the exact opposite. In verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I know what I will do. I will arise out of this unclean piggy pen and poverty riddled situation. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So he decides to head home. And can I point out for one moment the motive that is driving him home? The motive is not... I miss my father. I miss relationship with him. I miss his affection and care. It's not what he says. He similarly doesn't say, I miss all of the relationships that I had at home. I miss them and that's why I need to go home. He also does not say, and I am tired of living a dishonorable, broken life. I need to stop this and I need to go back home and I need to get some things sorted out. He says none of that. None of that is his motivation for going home. Here's why he's motivated to go home. Bread. My father's hired servants have more than enough bread. He is purely selfish, only thinking of himself. In verse 19. He says this, right? He's planning out what he's going to say to his father. He's going to say, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now remember, the father here is God. In the parable, what what the young man reveals here is that his theology is horrible. His understanding and his belief about his father, who is God in the story, is absolutely horrible off. He does not know who and how his father is. Verse 20. And he arose and he began to move from the faraway land towards his father. And he comes back to his father with questionable motives, bad theology, and a horrific lifestyle. It's quite a resume. Here I come, God. Here I come. My motives are wrong. My theology is off. And my lifestyle is horrific. It's all true. But you know what else is true? At least he's cutting down the proximity between him and his father. And let's just see what that does. Let's just see where that goes. Verse 20, second half. He arose and he came to his father... Here's where the story really starts to turn. But while he was still a long way off, his father, father is God here, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Ingredient to a wealthy life, number one, relationship with our father. What does the father do? He restores it questionable motives, bad theology, 
horrific lifestyle, but he just simply makes the proximity move to the father and the father then, right? The father makes the proximity move towards him from there. The father leaves the front porch and he runs, runs, and he arose. His father saw him and ran to him and embraced him. His father relationship has been restored. One out of four. All right, we're trending in the right direction here. Verse 21. And the son said to him, here's his pre-planned speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Not one of the nice ones, not one of the ones that we just had made that are pretty good. Bring the best robe and what? And put it on him. Cover him with it. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Brother used to be hanging out in the pig pen with the unclean piggies in abject poverty, disgrace and humility, humbled. But now, Father says, no. His identity, he's going to have an identity shift. And he covers him with the best robe. He puts a ring of honor on his finger and the best shoes on his feet. His personal identity has been restored. Absolute flipping of the script. Covered now, not in shame, not in guilt, but covered in forgiveness and honor. Relationship with God restored, relationship with himself restored. Now he gets to live out of this restored dignity. What a blessing that is. Verse 23. We've got two ingredients of wealth down. Let's see where we go from here. And verse 23, father says, the father here is the master of ceremonies, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us plural let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they plural began to celebrate right this community that he has forsaken these relationships that he ran away from the father says it's party time and we all all of us all y'all the party is for everyone and it's like family and it's friends and it's business associates it's second cousin eddie everybody's invited to this thing because we haven't just harvested a meager calf or a kind of okay animal we're going for the fattened calf right party's on the fire's burning the spit is turning the lights are on the musicians are playing it's happening the invitation to the party has happened the party is happening and everyone is there and he's being reintroduced to mom and his brother and his cousins and his friends whom he has forsaken the father brings them all back together his relationships are full-on restored here third ingredient 
The father restored himself. That's God. He restored his personal dignity and identity. That's number two. He restores his relationships with other people. That's number three. And then number four, right? Regarding creation itself. He had been in abject poverty. He's got nothing to his name. He squandered it all. He's hanging out with piggies. That's not an honorable vocational place to rule over creation. He's done with that. He's brought back. He's bestowed everything else by the Father, and we're just assuming that when tomorrow morning, when the sun wakes up, and we all get up with it, that this sun is going to have real, dignifying, honorable, like, blessing others kinds of work to engage in. He's back. He's doing his thing. Everything has been restored. What is Jesus saying to us in this story? Here's what he's saying. It's party time, exclamation mark. You ever hear Jesus quoted as saying, it's party time in the Gospels? Just to condense the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is saying it's party time and all y'all are invited. Y'all are the son or the daughter that ran away. You did your thing, I get it, squandered everything. You walked away from wealth and all the ways I made you for it. But the party, you were invited back. In every way I made you, I want to cloak you in wealth. Party is raging. Come in and join. Now, a question I want to just tease out for a second here is when is the party? It's a theological teasing out. Can we go there for a second? Because I think there's three options as a Christian, theologically speaking, where you could try to place... In the life of a believer, where is the party happening? And depending on where you think the party happens in your Christian life will determine a lot of things about you regarding wealth and the wealth that God invites us into. Here's option number one. There's there's some Christians that believe that this party that Jesus is inviting us into in the parable of the prodigal son, that that party is what happens at salvation. That at some point in our lives, we literally, we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I'm a broken sinner. I've squandered it all. I am in abject poverty. I need you. Cover me. Wash me. Forgive me. I need you. Okay? That would be like what we call conversion. It would go from darkness to light, from being not in the family of God to being in the family of God, to being in your own sin, to being in the forgiveness and grace of God. Right? That's a transition that literally happens at some point in time. Okay? Some Christians would say, that's the party, right there. That's the moment of celebration. And then maybe, like a week or two or three later, when you get baptized in church, everyone's like, woo, I got baptized, he's a Christian now, baptism party, woo, woo, right? But then, but then the party ends. Because the next day you wake up, and now the message is, Jesus died for you, so you better live for him. He spilled his blood, Because of your sin, now you better get to work paying him back. Serve him. You're not down in kids' ministry? Why not? He died for you. Your neighbor doesn't know about Jesus? How could you not tell them because he's already done this for you? Party's over. Now it's time to get to work. That's how some Christians understand the when of the party that Jesus is inviting us into. It happens at conversion, but then parties past tense. Now we got to get down to work. 
Suck it up. Stop sinning. Start doing good. Time to pay him back. Okay? That's one option in terms of when the party is. Hint, I don't think that's it. Right? Here's option number two. Some Christians would say that the party is in some future tense place, either when we die or when Jesus comes back. That that's the party. That's when we're with God and we're with others and we get to do all the things over creation he made us to do and our dignity is fully restored, right? Heaven is the party, or we would say new creation. And I would say absolutely there's a ton of truth to that, that the party is coming in a way that we've never experienced. But here's, here's what I believe. Here's, I th- here's what I think is the when of the party. When is the party that Jesus is talking about? It's right now. Now-ish. And 10 seconds from now. Hold on, not done. And three months from now. And the party's continuing three years from now, three decades from now. Some of us in the room have like 70 years left to live. I don't. But for some of you, 70 years, 80 years into the future, the party is still raging on. It doesn't stop. It keeps going. Why do I believe that the party is now, present tense, all the way into the future? Including when Jesus comes back. That's when it actually ramps up. As if crazy ramping up. Awesome. Why do I believe it's now? Because here's, here's what I believe. That the Father has met us and wrapped his arms around us. Now. And he doesn't let go. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's what he said. So the father is giving us himself. Now. And five seconds from now. And three months from now. And five decades from now. Father's giving himself. Regarding my own personal identity and dignity and forgiveness, this covering, this robe that the Father bestows upon the young man, right? that covering is ours as soon as we bow the knee to receive the gift of Jesus. It's ours now. And he never takes the covering away. He never removes the dignity or the honor or the royal status. We are always a royal priesthood. That's who we are in him now five seconds from now three months three decades now present tense future this invitation to deep meaningful relationships he invites us into that now and for the rest of our lives he wants to lead us into that more and more this call to rule and subdue creation in the unique and magnificent ways that he has made you to do it that invitation is right now and it's tomorrow and it's three it never stops the party is now and it continues we're living in the party and the party is only supposed to get better as we incrementally step by step grow grow over time this is discipleship here in our relationship with god in our relationship with others in, in knowing who we are in him and our restored identity. And as we grow to become better like Proverbs 31 woman and like Joseph, greater rulers and stewards of creation. It only gets better, but it is all the time. That is the environment in which we are and get to grow. Now, last thing here before the band comes up. Um, 
I want to talk about the feeling, the emotions of the party. Because sometimes we are so rigorously cognitive and mental that we, we are not able to enter in or to taste or experience what it is, what the party is like from God's perspective. And, and our emotions shift and change, but, but God is able to stay in a place of celebration a lot longer than we are. Just want to illustrate that for us affectively this morning. What is the feel of the party? Um, I'll give you a story. This happened last, last Saturday. All you women were at the ladies' retreat. Ladies had a great time last week. Super fun, right? All the guys were at home tending to their families and taking care of business. K- kidding. So I'm home with the family with four kids. Megan and Evie are at the women's retreat. It's me and the other four kids because we have so many kids. And it was a really windy day. Do you guys remember how windy it was? Like just raging winds. And at some point in the day, I'm out in the garage doing some work out there. And uh, one of my kids, Will, came and said, Hey, Dad, um, we think that the cottonwood tree in the backyard is leaning a little bit. And I'm like, No, it's not. And then like five minutes later, they came. They're like, Dad, I think the cottonwood tree is leaning. I'm like, All right, I'll come look. I walk back and I look at it. And it's got like a little bit of a lean to it. Like, I don't know. I'm not like a mathematician, but maybe like a 4% lean. But it's like a 90-foot-tall tree that's like this big around. Like, tree's going to be fine, okay? But I got four kids there. It's a windy day. And I I just give them a little fatherly advice. And I say, hey, kids, um, here's the deal. If if you hear the the tree start to, like, break, run. Which which is a piece of advice I give them when they get stung by a bee. As soon as you get stung by one bee, run, because you might be on a— you don't know if you're, like, near a hive. One sting might mean a hundred— so get out of there, right? So if you hear cracking, go, get out of the way. And I call the tree guy who I know who's going to come out. He, he, I talk to the tree guy. He's going to come out and check it out. Anyway, um, but I move on thinking the tree's fine. So a uh, half hour later, I'm still in the garage, and uh, Clay is playing basketball right outside of the garage. And I hear the tree start to fall. A 90-foot-tall tree, when it starts to fall, oh, you hear it. Cracking. And I hear the cracking and I see, like your brain does amazing things when events like this are happening, it like slows down. So I see the tree coming down. Clay is playing basketball right outside the garage, right, clay here, tree here, right in the trajectory of the tree falling. That'll scare a dad. And uh, and as, as I see the tree falling, Levi, who was on the porch, he yells, I didn't know this at the time because I'm in the garage, I can't hear it, but he yells, Clay, run! I'm in the garage, I see it, I say, Clay, run! Because you don't have much time. I see Clay start to run, tree slams down, like the earth shakes, monster sound. 90 foot tree, branches just thundering down. And so then I... Right? Brain does a lot of things in a short period of time sometimes. I, I start walking out of the garage, and I knew that Clay started to run. I didn't see how far he got. And I don't know where my other kids are, because they were playing around the yard too. As I walk out, I don't know what I'm stepping into and what new reality has just been introduced into my life. Any parents in the room? You feel the heaviness of that? I walk out, and I'm like, God, please protect my family, I trust you, go outside, one, two, three, four, there's Clay, everybody's body is intact, he got out of the way, now Clay's crying, because he almost got crushed by a 90 foot tree, 
He made it out in time. The place where he was just playing basketball, covered with limbs. The kind of limbs that you don't make it out of if they fall on you. And so we, the family, we gathered, and we just like, like we felt the heaviness of that moment. Clay's crying, and we just thank God. God, thank you for protecting us. Thank you for watching over us. In those moments, here's, here's what was going on in my heart. It lingered for the rest of the day, and actually it's still lingering now. This is two weeks ago. I nearly lost a son that day. Metaphorically speaking, I got him back. And it changed the whole tenor of the rest of the day. See, because I, um, I had leftovers in the oven, uh, chicken and rice that we had actually le- uh, heated up three times over the past week, a little bit dry, a little bit dry and crusty at that point. And, um, and as soon as I walked into the house, because we, we were outside, we were processing together, just at one point I just went up in my room and just laid down, like just prostrate before the Lord, like God. Yeah. Um, but I knew we weren't having leftovers tonight. We're not doing old three times reheated chicken and rice tonight. We're going out. You know why we're going out? Because it's party time. Because this son that I now know could have been taken from me was restored to me. And the other kids, I didn't know where they were when the tree fell. They're all here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to party. And so we went out to eat. And the Kunklers don't go out to eat a whole lot because every time we do, the gross domestic product increases by 1% because it's a lot of money. It's a lot of mouths to feed. It's a lot lot of shelling out of money. But we went out to eat that night. And we ordered way too much food. And we ate way too much food. We actually didn't feel very good after we ate. But we feasted and we partied. The fattened calf was on the table. And our hearts were light and heavy at the same time. We were thankful for being together. Like we celebrated life and life together, and life to the full, and we ate, and we feasted. It was a party scene. Now, I'm still feeling like that a little bit two weeks later. A month from now, I will probably emotionally have moved on to a different space. Here's what I know about God. He hasn't moved on. He doesn't move on from receiving us back. That feeling of, my lost one has been restored, it sticks with him and the party that's why i say the party is always it is always on the fattened calf is always on the table the robe is always on the father is right there with us he's leading us into relationships with others because he's pumped that we're back and his pumpedness doesn't stop it keeps going that's what we are invited into to incrementally and disciplinedly over time to grow in wealth in and among the raging celebratory party that Jesus is throwing. That's the invitation to wealth that he gives us. Band, come on back up. We're going to sing. We're not singing. We're actually going to, we're going to party. Party's going to break out in just a little bit. Sarah is now the MC at the party. Sarah, come lead us. As, uh, as we sing, we are also going to take communion, right? Which is like the greatest fattened calf celebratory feast ever. We're, like, we're just going to feast on the broken body in the shed blood of Jesus, which is our gateway, our entry point into the, 
into the raging party that's happening, into the wealth that he has and is and will continue to bestow upon us. If you are not a follower of Jesus, just invite you to watch and, uh, and to observe. This is, this is not um, for people who are not in the family of God. If you are not in the family of God and you're here, we love you. Keep coming back. We'd love you to consider um, receiving Jesus and becoming part of the family. But this is for those of us um, who are feasting at the table with our Father, with others, with restored dignity and identity, full-on honor given to us, and we just feast around the table of Jesus. So we're guys, come on forward, guys and gals. We're going to pass those out. Any point in the next song, feel free to take it, and I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the invitation to the feast and the celebration. You throw a good party, and we want to live in it. Help us, Father, to live our lives in the epicenter of this massive celebration that continues. And it will continue in ever-increasing form all the way into eternity because that's the kind of party you throw. It doesn't get worse. It gets better. We receive your invitation. We thank you for Jesus who covers us and who invites us in to the family and all the things. As grateful sons and daughters, we say thank you and we love you. And we party with you. In the name of Jesus.